Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Misha de Vogel, a historian with the Australian Army History Unit. One of the Royal Australian Navy's greatest contributions to the war in the Pacific during the Second World War was its contribution to the many amphibious operations conducted under the leadership of General Douglas MacArthur. To discuss RAN amphibious operations in World War II, I am joined by Professor Peter Dean of the University of Western Australia, where he is the Chair of Defence Studies. Peter has been a Fulbright Fellow and an Endeavour Research Scholar in Australia-United States Alliance Studies. He has written extensively on Australia's amphibious operations, and in 2021, he will publish books on a range of subjects, including Australia in the Second World War, Australian Amphibious Warfare in the Second World War, and finally, Australia in the Cold War. Peter Djokovic is also here and he's a historian from the Sea Power Centre in Australia and has written extensively on RAN operations in the Second World War. And our third guest is Peter Jones, who is a retired Vice Admiral and a member of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. He's also written extensively on naval history and most recently published the biography of Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths. Thank you all for joining me. First, to set the scene, Peter Dean, can you please explain why amphibious operations would play such an important part of the war against Japan? Yes, excellent. I think it's actually pretty easy, and the answer to that is geography. So if you get a map and look at the Pacific area, if you look at the area of operations that encompass the Pacific War um, against Japan, it's uh, an area in a geography dominated by the ocean and by islands. And to be able to manoeuvre military forces, um, both land forces and naval forces across that space, requires you to move through the ocean spaces and requires you to basically uh, project military force um, throughout that area and to be able to take those vital pieces of land that provide um, ports and airfields in particular, um, then basically you had to be able to manoeuvre ground troops, army troops, all marines um, by the ships and land them from the sea to the shore and also while operating in lots of these environments particularly that area where the australians dominated most of their operations the southwest pacific area that was then the archipelago to australia's north so an archipelago being an area that's personified by lots of islands within a ocean expanse and space so we see um, amphibious operations where you're projecting large amount of forces from uh from ships uh, who've travelled a fair distance to the shore, or you have what they call shore-to-shore operations, which is smaller amphibious operations where army and marine forces manoeuvre themselves using smaller craft from island to island or along coastlines to be able to use that as a manoeuvre space to manoeuvre their forces around. Okay. So, Peter Djokovic, would you like to take it up from here? During the First World War, Australia's experience was a successful 1914 rebel campaign, covered in a previous podcast, and the disastrous Gallipoli campaign of 1915. By 1941, technology, technologically, had anything changed in getting the troops ashore from ships? Yeah, well, there was certainly a marked improvement in the technology in the intervening decades between the First and the Second World Wars. Both the equipment and the doctrine required to conduct amphibious operations prior to World War I was severely lacking. There were a few experimental landing craft designed and built, but without a great deal of success. Now, the, the beaches at Gallipoli were, of course, very well defended, and the vast majority of boats used during that landing were not designed for amphibious operations. And if anyone gets the opportunity to visit the Australian War Memorial, then you can see there one of the boats that was used in the Gallipoli landings. Um, 
it's just a large open lifeboat which afforded no protection in any way to the occupants of the boat. Uh, the troops made their final approach to the beach in these types of boats, rowing them ashore under heavy fire and predictably they incurred heavy casualties. So when you combine the poor design of the landing craft with the tactical failings of the landings, you begin to see why that campaign was such a disaster. Uh, the Gallipoli campaign had a major influence on strategic thinking post-war and into the 1930s, both in Britain and America. It wasn't until sort of the mid to late 1930s that we began to see real serious consideration given to the design of specialist landing craft. So in Britain, a company called Thornycroft & Co., which had had a long history of naval construction, uh, produced a boat which was initially designated an assault landing craft, or ALC, but later became known as an LCA. Uh, meanwhile, in America, a landing craft was designed and built by a chap by the name of Andrew Higgins. His boat was designated a Landing Craft Vehicle and Personnel, or LCVP, and they were actually often referred to as Higgins boats, and they were so successful that General Eisenhower went so far as to claim that Higgins actually won the war for the Allies. The two designs were very similar. They carried between 30 to 40 personnel. Uh, they both had flat bottoms and shallow drafts, which allowed them to get high up on the beach. They both had a bow ramp, which would, could be lowered to allow for the troop to disembark. And they were both quite fast and manoeuvrable. Uh, the British design allowed for the easy addition of armour plating on the hull, but what the American boats lacked in armour, they made up for in speed and manoeuvrability. These boats weren't designed to make an ocean crossing. They were intended to be carried to the target beach by a larger parent vessel designated a landing ship infantry or an LSI. And Australian forces through necessity used both type of boats. Uh, out of the development of the LCAs and the Higgins boats came other types of landing craft. Uh, a landing craft mechanised or LCM for example uh, was developed uh, which later in the war could carry uh, up to a 35 tonne tank. But they were also very large, very heavy in their own right, and they couldn't be carried on an LSI's davits uh, like the smaller landing craft could. Uh, so actually getting them into the water was a very difficult and drawn out process. And the LCMs were later superseded by LCTs and LSTs, uh, which stood for landing craft tank and landing ship tank respectively. They were larger vessels again, which, which could make uh, a, a larger ocean crossing independently without needing to be hoisted aboard a parent vessel. So overall, there are around 80 different types of landing crafts and, and shipped in operation during the war, all designed for different specific purposes. So amphibious operations of World War II were sort of a world apart from what had occurred at Gallipoli. Thank you. Uh, Peter Jones, amphibious operations would require the RAN to operate closely with the US Navy, the US Army, the US Marines and the Australian Army. Uh, can you please explain the interoperability issues that they would have had to surmount, particularly after the disastrous Battle of Savo in August 1942? Uh, certainly, and I uh, commend to listeners um, the, the Battle of Savo Island podcast, which was done a couple of years ago in this series. But the issue of interoperability between the two navies was one of fundamental importance. At the Battle of Savo Island, the Royal Australian Navy ships essentially used uh, Royal Navy procedures communications between ships was by flags and flashing light and at that time the US Navy was just starting to introduce uh, radio sets to allow voice communications between ships and this was called talk between ships or TBS. Following the Allied defeat um, at the Battle of Savo Island the Royal Australian Navy realised that it, it was going to have to operate um, much more like a an element of the US Navy. Um, and so this included adopting uh, TBS, US voice procedures. And, and to give an example, um, in the the, um, the British-based procedures, 
you would say naught. In uh, the US procedures, you'd say zero. But there was a, a, um, acronyms and, and terms were, were different, and it just meant that uh, our signalman just had to learn uh, this new procedure. There was also uh, different US uh, formations. How they would actually deploy ships in an ocean space was different. Um, they also were developing very rapidly replenishment at sea, and the Australian Navy had to learn how to do that. Um, and there was, uh, um, in the series, that there will be a, 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 another episode on replenishment at sea, which probably better explains that important innovation. Uh, another important element that is often um, uh, missed is that uh, the US Navy had larger uh, task group commander staffs to properly plan and execute operations over prolonged periods. And the Australian Navy had to learn to, um, to follow that same principle and, and have larger staffs in their, in their flagship. As been covered in other Naval History podcasts dealing with the, the RAN in uh, World War II, this effort to um, have much greater interoperability with the US Navy was probably one of its greatest achievements of the war. Now, specifically when it came to amphibious operations, the naval aspects were driven uh, by the US Navy, who were rapidly uh, gaining considerable expertise in amphibious warfare, as uh, Peter has uh, indicated. Uh, and when it came to embarking troops on board Royal Australian Navy ships, um, they had to learn the differences between US uh, Australian Army, uh, U.S. Army and U.S. Marine requirements for, for their troops when they came on board the ships. This interface between ship and embarked troops was helped immeasurably by having what was called a ship's army detachment. And this was an Australian Army detachment uh, on board the, the, uh, each landing ship infantry. And uh, they were called uh, a SAD for short. And the concept of a SAD um, helped that interface they, uh, in terms of loading equipment um, and, and getting the, the, uh, the troops ready to uh, disembark. And that, that sad concept is uh, still in use in uh, RN amphibious ships today. Uh, Peter Dean, if you wouldn't mind, could you explain to the listeners who might have heard about island hopping during the Pacific campaign what exactly this was and how amphibious operations were to be employed to defeat Japan? Sure. Look, I think there's two key things to consider when uh, looking. Well, actually, I'll go back and say three, three things to consider in terms of the way amphibious operations were used. There's a sort of a Japanese uh, approach early on in the war when they were ascendant in the Pacific and they were on the offensive and they used large scale amphibious operations throughout the Pacific area. And then on the Allies side, there was a debate between basically what the United States had developed in the interwar period with their doctrine, with that technology, about how they would undertake um, amphibious operations and, of course, how the, the British and, of course, Australian interpretation of amphibious operations would also operate as well. So between these three, there, it was all centred around this notion of, um, of island hopping, that is moving through these archipelagos, moving through these littoral areas and taking key islands that you needed basically for ports and airfields in strategic locations. So both sides ascertained early on what they didn't necessarily need to do was to assault and take every single island or every single part of territory in the Pacific. What you could do would 
pick out strategic areas where there are ports or airfields available or where you could build them um, to provide the ability to project power into the region and particularly air power. And this is one of the great important elements about amphibious operations in the Second World War in the Pacific was many of these operations were designed around um, using land forces and naval forces to seize an island or an objective or an area to be able to build a port to sustain those operations but also an airfield because the airfield would allow then air power to be um, pushed out to the surrounding areas to provide air cover and realistically often more often than not, it was that air power that was providing sea control to allow the ships to maneuver across the ocean this happened um, in different parts as i said when you look at the japanese approach to amphibious operations it was actually very similar to the um British approach to amphibious operations. So we know that amphibious operations are some of the most complex operations that we can undertake in um, military um, operations, largely because you have a combination of Navy ships landing often army troops or marine troops. And as I mentioned, the element of air power that was now added into the equation in the interwar period. And of course, highly capable air power, air power that could sink ships or um, provide a pathway into to landing forces by um, providing them a curtain of firepower and protection. So the Japanese and the British slash Australian version of amphibious operations is they looked at assaulting a fixed defensive position was going to be very difficult. And if you look, for instance, at the people might be aware of the Dieppe raid um, on France in 1942 in Europe, um, where it didn't go very successfully when the British and the Canadians there attempted to frontally assault a quite heavily defended port on the European shore. So what had happened in the 20s and 30s is the Japanese and, and the British had decided this was just too difficult. So what they decided the best way to do amphibious operations was was actually to do them largely at night, um, to do them under the um, to provide additional cover and to do them away from where the enemy was concentrated. So you would land at a point away from the main enemy's defences, and once you ground forces were successfully ashore, they then manoeuvre around to take those key strategic positions. And this was very effectively used by the Japanese in the Philippines, um, in Malaya and Singapore, and of course through the Dutch East Indies, or what we know today as the Indonesian archipelago. For the Americans, they had a very different set of um, of factors, geographical factors that they had to overcome. They're planning in the interwar period. They thought that most likely they wouldn't be able to hold the Philippine Islands against a, uh, a Japanese assault. So what they would have to do would then basically be march across the central Pacific from Hawaii through back to the Philippines. And if you look at the geography there, what you have is a lot of small coral islands. You don't have the large landmass like New Guinea. You don't have the large um, islands like you have in the Indonesian archipelago or down through the Malayan Peninsula, but you have lots of small coral islands. And so their issue was different. So they had to figure out a way to basically do frontal assaults into those heavily defended positions. So their view of doing this was to using that new technology that we already mentioned, combining that with air power, with naval gunfire support um, in an integrated system that would allow them to use basically um, aircraft carriers to project force into an area and provide local air support and to seal off an operational area and then heavy gunfire support from their battleships and their cruisers to pound these coral islands and then using those new amphibious craft to get ashore in the face of certified um, opposition. Now, whether you were doing that through the Central Pacific, you're opting, 
again, hopping from key island to key island, not necessarily having to take them all. Or if you were MacArthur, who had a different set of geographical um, options, looking at the large island in New Guinea, the second largest island in the world, and that Indonesian archipelago, he could also pick strategic um, areas, but he didn't have to rely on carrier-based air power, but instead he could use land-based air power. And he could do a more British style of largely landing in parts of New Guinea or some of these other islands where the enemy were not, and then manoeuvring to take an objective, or landing in a different area to build an airfield or a port using their um, engineering infrastructure to be able to set that up to dominate that local region. So island hopping is pretty synonymous with the Pacific War as a whole. It was actually used by all sides at the different stages of the Pacific, but what they had is different challenges in dealing with the different types of island hopping that they did in. And in some cases, particularly in, in MacArthur's um, area or in the Japanese case early in the war in Southeast Asia, it was actually hopping around the edges of a particular island like New Guinea rather than hopping from one small coral atoll or small island like we saw in the Central Pacific. Thank you. Now, having set the scene, we take up the story in late 1942. The Australian squadron of cruisers and destroyers were joined by US cruisers and destroyers to form Task Force 74 and begin patrolling the Coral Sea. Peter Djokovic, at the beginning of the war, three passenger ships, Canimbla, Manura and Westralia, were converted to armed merchant cruisers. In an earlier podcast, we heard of Canimbla's exploits in the Persian Gulf, but in late 1942, they were all converted to landing ships infantry. Can you explain something of these ships and what the conversion involved? Yeah, well, the whole purpose of an LSI is to carry a large number of troops from point A to point B and then to provide those troops with the means uh, to get from ship to shore. Passenger liners were an attractive option to convert into LSIs as they had the space to accommodate a large number of personnel and the ability to carry smaller landing craft. So Canimbala, Menorah and Australia were all passenger liners in their pre-war lives, as you mentioned, Misha. Um, they were all requisitioned quite early on in the war and converted into armed merchant cruisers. So they'd conduct open ocean patrols, uh, hunt, hunt enemy shipping and raiders, that sort of thing, uh, which in turn freed up other Allied warships for other duties. But by about mid-42, the utility of armed merchant cruisers was very much waning. They, uh, they weren't suited to convoy work and they were simply outmatched by purpose-built warships. So the decision was made to convert the three ships to LSIs instead, beginning with Menorah in October 42. Uh, the work was carried out at Cockatoo Island Dockyard and took about five months to complete for each ship. Uh, the top decks were basically stripped right back, uh, aerials were dismounted, uh, dismantled, uh, the top, main topmast was removed, their larger guns which had actually been installed when they were originally converted into uh, merchant cruisers were removed and their anti-aircraft armament was enhanced. Uh, so internally, the timber and plaster bulkheads were removed, new corrugated iron bulkheads were installed, and all the elaborate woodwork and finery that was still there from their service as passenger liners was removed and replaced with more utilitarian materials like steel and iron. And Lieutenant William Swan was posted to Australia during her conversion, and he recalled some engineer officers who had actually served in the ship pre-war had audibly groaned as they watched the ornate plaster ceiling over what had once been the, the, the first-class dining saloon taken down strip by strip and taken ashore. So each ship carried between 16 to 24 landing craft, a mix of LCAs, Higgins boats and LCMs. Uh, scrambling nets were installed to allow the troops to embark on the landing craft once they'd been lowered into the water. Uh, they could each carry more than 1,200 troops and had a crew complement of around 350, made up mainly of reservists. A great bulk of the companies of all three ships were hostilities-only personnel, so they were enlisted in the RAN reserve. 
They also embarked a detachment of Royal Australian Eng Engineers to control the embarkation and disembarkation of troops and equipment. So all three ships played significant roles in the Pacific campaign. They were involved in some of the, the largest amphibious operations of the war, such as Moratai, uh, Leyte Gulf, Lingayen Gulf, Tarakan, Balakpapan, among others. So the tempo of operations was pretty high in 1944 and 45, and they were very successful. I uh, also would like to point out that the ships left quite a legacy in the RAN. The Navy has rarely lacked an amphibious capability since the end of the war, from the LSTs of the late 1940s and 50s through to the current Canberra-class LHDs. So Peter Jones, even before the operations that Peter Dean was talking about have taken place, uh, there was an appreciation that there needed to be specialist amphibious training. Can you explain what these measures were that were put in place? Certainly. So um, as Peter Djokovic has mentioned, it, there was this big technological change um, and uh, during World War II there was seen to be this need for specialist landing craft and and either highly modified merchant ships, as we've just heard about, or purpose-built warships. Um, so with that came also an appreciation that specialist training was required. Both the British and the Americans were making great strides in this direction. And in early 1942, um, the Navy office in Melbourne, um, they uh, decided to approach the Royal Navy for assistance in setting up an amphibious training school or in the parlance of the day, a school of combined operations. Fortuitously, a Royal Australian Navy officer, Commander Frederick Cook, who was commanding just such a base in, in the UK. So he was repatriated along with a Royal, Navy, a Royal Marine officer, a Royal Artillery officer, and a Royal Australian Air Force officer, who uh, th those three also had experience in amphibious operations, with a view to establishing a, a training base in Australia. By September 1942, a nascent base called HMAS um, Assault, was, which, was going, which was commanded by Commander Cook, was established in Port Stephens, uh, north of Newcastle. And that, this over time, grew, um, and uh, there would be over 500 um, uh, service people at that base at any one time. The Americans also established a facility nearby, uh, the uh, HMAS Assault, and uh, eventually all that came under the command of uh, General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, the training was varied, but it can be gauged by its output. After a year in service, Assault had trained over 100 officers in amphibious doctrine and tactics, over 100 landing craft coxswains, 120 beach commandos, 40 landing craft signalmen, 453 boat crew, and 250 boat engineers. In addition, 20,000 US soldiers and 2,000 Australian soldiers were trained in the requirements from moving from ship to shore. Often amphibious ships came to assault to be trained and also to provide the ship for soldier training. In addition, there was training in, to, in addition to what was occurring in Port Stephens. The Australian Army had also set up a training base at uh, Tabool Point in southern Queensland and once again Navy ships were regularly used to help with this training. So now that we have the right uh, craft and we have the right people, Peter Dean would you mind taking us through the first set of amphibious operations the Australians were involved in and give us some assessment of how they fared? Sure, and I think what we should start in the context here, we've talked about um, doctrine and we've talked about training and we've talked about equipment, but we haven't really spoken much um, about 
um, culture, military culture, and I'll, I'll go back and talk about that a little bit. So everyone knows the famous landing at Gallipoli, you know, and that an amphibious operation basically personifies what we talk about in the Anzac legend. But pretty much after that time, and after you know, preceding that, the operation in New Guinea, the Australian military forces, particularly the army forces in um, in, in the First World War, pretty much had nothing to do with amphibious operations. When you look at the way the Australian Army in particular envisaged, and, and the Navy as well, envisaged it's doing its types of operations in the 1920s and 1930s, they had not envisaged um, amphibious warfare would be a large-scale military endeavour that they would have to undertake in the, in the next major war. So coming into this, coming into this period of 1941, 1942, early on, there's no tradition in the Australian military about um, amphibious warfare and amphibious operations. And if you go back and look at the 20s and 30s, there's only one or two amphibious operations that the military undertake throughout this entire period, and it's not taken very seriously at all. So what we also have to rely on is a, as a small number, a small handful of Australian Navy and Army officers who've got some experience with this um, over in Europe, particularly early on in the war, who also come back and help that process. But of course, it takes a long time, <coughs> excuse me, to get the equipment set up and built. <coughs> and there's a global shortage of these specialist amphibious craft and amphibious ships. And of course, the Southwest Pacific area, which the Australians room with Douglas MacArthur, is right at the bottom of the queue. You know, the Pacific War is second place to the war in, in Europe, the Germany first strategy. And then when you come over into the Pacific, it's divided between the US Navy and Admiral Nimitz's command in the Central Pacific, who have basically the first call on particular naval assets and that type of stuff. And then, of course, you got the Southwest Pacific area under Douglas MacArthur, which um, the Australians are in. And we were much further down the list, both in terms of the Pacific War, but also vis-a-vis -vis what's happening in, in um in the Atlantic War, what's happening in Europe and those sorts of things. So there's not a lot of equipment. The training operations that uh, Peter Jones talked about are all set up and put place and they do marvellous things, but it takes a long while to wind this up with no tradition, not a lot of experience, not a lot of people that who really steeped in this early on. But of course, operations can't wait for that training imperative to be complete. The pressure starts to come on to be able to use the ocean as a manoeuvre space um, reasonably quickly in this campaign. So we all probably heard about the Kokoda campaign and the, and uh, and what's happening up there in 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 Papua and New Guinea. But of course, what personifies that campaign is it's a land campaign in a maritime environment. Why you have the army slugging it out with the Japanese on um, the island of New Guinea, along the Kokoda Trail and down into Bunagona and Sandananda is because neither side has uh, a lot of amphibious capability in the region. Neither side during the majority of that campaign can really have air control or sea control to start to use the ocean as a manoeuvre space. But as the Papuan campaign, as the Kokoda campaign and the Bunagona and Sandananda campaign are starting to bog down, there becomes a lot more pressure 
um, to be able to undertake amphibious operations. So these first operations that we undertake are largely done with undertrained troops um, and in sort of almost experimental ways with ex experimental parts of equipment. So most people think that it's the big landing at, uh, at Lay in Operation Posturn in 1943 that's the first big amphibious operation and it's certainly the first big amphibious assault that we do. But there's a little known operation at a place called Good Enough Island, um, just to off to the northeast of Papua, which is actually the first amphibious operation um, that we take, and that's an amphibious raid. So the attempt here was for to send a small force up to Goodenough Island to conduct a raid and to eliminate the Japanese on the island and to see whether or not uh, the island could be useful um, to establish an, an airbase on it. Um, there was also some concern that Goodenough Island could be used as a staging base by the Japanese for their own operations further into New Guinea. And the Japanese forces that are actually on um, Goodenough Island are there as a result of the failed assault on Milne Bay. So as the, uh, the Japanese in August of 1942 were assaulting Milne Bay, they sent a large number of different forces from different parts of the region down towards it and some Japanese Special Naval Landing Infantry Forces had staged through Goodenough Island um, and they'd basically been stranded there when some Royal Australian Air Force P-40 Kitty Hawks um, had basically uh, eliminated their landing craft that were, were on the beach there as a part of their staging process. This was seen as, as both a threat and an opportunity for the Australians and the Allies in the region. So the Allied High Command decided that what they need to do is to conduct a raid on Goodenough Island to eliminate these Japanese forces and, as I said, to establish whether or not the, the island itself could be used for an advanced base for the Allies. So it was in a very strategic location. So they formed what was known as Drake Force, which is largely made up of the 2nd 12th Infantry Battalion from the 18th Brigade. Um, and it was their job to basically raid Goodenough Island. The commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel um, Arthur Arnold, had actually been one of the very first officers to go through some amphibious warfare training um, early on um, in the Joint Overseas Operational Training School co-located there with HMAS Assault. But he'd done really, one really short course and he was about the only officer in the battalion who, uh, who knew what he was doing. He was then given only a very uh, short period of time and only a couple of days to organise this amphibious raid. He got uh, one lot of aerial reconnaissance where he was able to go and look at the island and he only had a very small period of time in which to undertake the organisation of his force to go into this island. And, of course, they didn't have the same specialist equipment that we were talking about. They were actually transported on this raid on the, on the Royal Australian Navy destroyers Stuart and Arunta um, and they had along with them three captured Japanese landing craft from the failed assault at Milne Bay. They had three catches um, uh, from the local area that they were being used um, and two powered whale boats and this sort of motley collection of, um, of ships and men who'd never operated before were sort of thrown together in an attempt to take... Um, uh, Goodenough Island. Um, Task Force 44 provided um, protection and the Air Force provided protection as they manoeuvred these forces towards the island. They were landed using the British doctrine, that is, they landed away from the main enemy force. They landed at night. And the decision had been to actually split the force into two um, onto different sides of um, the bottom southeast corner of the island where the Japanese were thought to be located. Now, 
once they landed, they were basically dropped off by the Navy and uh, and those destroyers largely moved away offshore. A, uh, a, a huge thunderstorm and lightning and rainstorm swept in just after the force had been landed. And as they manoeuvred overland through the night through a very slippery and horrible and uh, tortuous trek to move on to the Japanese um, positions. In doing so, they hadn't done a lot of reconnaissance. There'd been um, no uh, detailed organisation for a lot of the force planning, given the short period of time and the lack of experience for everyone. And when the 2nd 12th um, Battalion ran into the Japanese, they found them deeply entrenched onto the island and they found it basically impossible to basically push through and to be able to assault the Japanese positions. Um, they tried numerous times and eventually they were successful because the Japanese actually decided to do an amphibious withdrawal and that is use um, some of their own um, naval craft and covering forces to actually withdraw um, the force from the island and pull them um, back to Rabaul. And of course it was an operation that was beset with a lot of difficulties. The two Australian destroyers um, got detached. It was dark. It was raining. The communications were not good. And at one stage, they came very close to actually opening fire on each other after receiving information that a Japanese force was in the area. The Australians had made uh, land forces, had made an assumption that the based on the intelligence they were giving that the Japanese Special Naval Landing Infantry were starving and ill-equipped, and that proved not to be the case. There'd been no provision to do what we'd term modern amphibious operations. So while the operation was a success in the sense that the objective was, was achieved tactically, it was not a very good operation at all. And there was a lot of hand-wringing at the end of this and a lot of analysis of this, and um, which basically said that we were still really amateurs at this. One of the key things that the uh, the land forces had done and not taken any um, heavy firepower, they left their mortars behind. There'd be no provision for naval gunfire support using the destroyers. Um, the uh, coordination of air power had been very poor. Um, and it basically signalled that this is what all the things that could go wrong when you take um, naval forces, air forces and land forces that haven't trained together, that were not very experienced and hadn't properly been given the time to do the reconnaissance, to do the planning and to get this operation um, right. And in fact, they were quite lucky that the Japanese actually withdrew their troops in the end. From here, we have a, a then a much longer period of time before the Australians conduct another major operations. The American forces, a couple of American um, forces, um, are used uh, soon thereafter in amphibious assaults along the coastal shore of New Guinea. These have very similar issues and problems with the tactical components of the landing but are operationally successful. And then what it does is lead up through into the 1943 campaign where Australia has, and the Americans and the Allies have considerable more time to do training and to do planning before they conduct the large divisional size assault they do um, in September of 1943 at um, outside of Lai. Okay, so um, so far we don't ha we have a, a a successful operation, but not a brilliant report card. Um, Peter Djokovic, we've talked about the sort of motley assessment of of, of um, ships that were available. Can you please talk through what the RAN contributed in terms of other ships to the operations? You know, an amphibious landing is a massive operation with a lot of moving parts involving potentially hundreds of ships. So amphibious vessels of all sizes, battleships, cruisers, destroyers, escort carriers. But it also involves a lot of uh, smaller ships like hydrographic vessels and minesweepers and supply ships. 
that were responsible for the more, I, I, I guess, sort of prosaic aspects of the operation. And there was a greater appreciation for what these ships had to do as, as, the, as we gained more experience in amphibious operations as the war went on. So on top of the three LSIs and the cruisers and, the, and the, the, the destroyers, which would normally operate as part of the covering force, the RAN also provided frigates and corvettes and motor launchers, which often formed part of the minesweeping and hydrographic group. And then another part of the fleet known as the service force would also include oilers and stores issuing ships and ammunitioning ships, that sort of thing. So these smaller vessels had integral roles to play in amphibious operations. Um, HMAS Gascoigne, for example, conducted uh, hydrographic operations at Lady Gulf. Uh, she entered San Pedro Bay two days prior to the actual landing to lay channel markers and shoal water buoys to help guide the landing craft onto the beach. So uh, to put the importance of hydrography into perspective here, you just think of scores of landing craft all trying to make their way to the beach in confined and shallow waters. And they all need to be sure that they're following a safe channel, that they're not going to strike a submerged reef or a shoal or some other object. And that doesn't happen if the hydrographic part of the operation isn't conducted effectively. Also bear in mind that the hydrographic ships operated very close inshore very early on in proceedings when naval gunfire had not yet suppressed enemy activity. So Gascoigne actually came under enemy air attack on the very first day that she commenced surveying in San Pedro Bay. And she later reported 39 enemy air attacks in close proximity to the ship by the end of the month. So this was a type of work that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it was extremely dangerous and absolutely essential to the success of the operation. Uh, there were also other uh, vessels involved in logistic operations as well, uh, stores issuing ships like HMAS Merca, which provided fuel, uh, food and water. Um, Poyang and Yunnan were uh, armament stores issuing ships, so they provided ammunition to the fleet of places like Itape and Hollandia and Biak and Leyte. Uh, Bishop Dale was an oiler and provided fuel at places like Guadalcanal and again at Leyte Gulf. Um, she actually proved to be a remarkably resilient ship. She was struck by a sea mine, or she struck a sea mine in, in August 1942, which took several months to repair. She was actually hit by a kamikaze aircraft in the Philippines in December 1944, um, shortly after the, the main landings at Leyte Gulf. And that caused some significant damage to her upper decking and superstructure and took the lives of three crew members. Uh, two of whom were civilians. That's another aspect that many people may not know, that quite a few of these support vessels like Bishopdale were uncommissioned auxiliaries. So they had a naval attachment aboard, but they were primarily crewed by civilian merchant sailors, and they were certainly not spared the inherent dangers of war. Uh, also not to be forgotten is the important intelligence gathering work that was done by the Coast Watchers uh, throughout the South Pacific. Um, in March 1943, for example, a group of Coast Watchers uh, were landed at Cape Orford on New Britain to provide intelligence about Japanese air and sea movements. And when planning for the landings in New Britain uh, began, they sort of formed a, a, an intelligence hub as uh, further, further Coast Watchers were landed in September and those reinforcements then took up uh, other positions around the island and they formed a, a very important intelligence network leading up to Allied operations in New Britain. So the Coast Watch has made an extremely important contribution in the Pacific theatre. Um, Admiral Halsey certainly recognised you know, their, their contribution to the Guadalcanal campaign. So they made a, a, a contribution that was um, you know, probably larger than the, than the actual number of Coast Watchers that served throughout the theatre. Okay. So, Peter Jones, as these operations progressed, how did the command and control arrangements work? So as we've heard, uh, General MacArthur was the supreme commander of allied forces in the southwest Pacific uh, area. Now he had a, 
uh, a naval component commander um, who was subordinate to him, and that was the commander of Allied Naval Forces Southwest Pacific Area. And he was also um, the commander of the 7th Fleet, US 7th Fleet. And this was sometimes known as MacArthur's Navy at the time. That admiral was initially Vice Admiral Arthur Carpenter, but in November 1943, it, uh, he was relieved by Vice Admiral Thomas Kincaid. Um, and under Thomas Kincaid was the amphibious forces uh, of the 7th Fleet, and they were commanded by Rear Admiral Daniel Barbie. Now, the Australian squadron, and as you heard from uh, Peter Djokovic, there was a, a large range of, of disparate ships that were part of that um, naval squadron, and they were commanded initially by Rear Admiral Victor Crutchley, Royal Navy. And in June 1944, uh, for the first time, um, an Australian, uh, Commodore John Collins, um, became the the commander of the Australian squadron. So there was, if you like, his role was dual-hatted. And um, so he commanded that national Australian naval squadron. But depending on the type of ship, they were then divvied up into different elements of the 7th Fleet. So, for example, uh, John Collins commanded Task Force 74, which was a mix of Australian and American cruisers and destroyers. The amphibious ships were part of Admiral uh, Barbie's force. So you, you could have elements of the Australian uh, Naval Squadron scattered in different f um, parts of the, um, of the 7th Fleet, um, depending on where it made sense for them to be, uh, to be there. Um, and probably it's also worth mentioning that there was also uh, the senior captain of the three Aryan amphibious uh, ships, he was designated the Senior Naval Officer Australian Landing Ships, or, or SNOLs, and he would be responsible for basically those three ships, and uh, both administratively and, and in, in some operations operationally. And probably the final bit that's worth mentioning, and uh, uh, Peter Dean has sort of um, touched on this a little bit, is there was importantly that in an amphibious operation, it requires a complex command interplay between the, the senior naval officer and the senior army marine officer in the development and execution of that operation. As a follow-up, can you just go through who these key personalities were and, ha and how well they got on? Yeah, so I, I think uh, as uh, Peter Dean's sort of shown is amphibious operations was the main game here and um, and everyone in theatre knew that that was uh, what um, all the naval forces were focused on doing. So key to that really was that they had to have a very close cooperation um, between all the naval and land commanders. Um, when I was researching my book, Australia's Argonauts, I had the opportunity to read the personal papers of Admirals Kincaid, Barbie, Collins and Farncom. And a couple of things stood out. And so first, just uh, Vice Admiral Kincaid. So a bit about him. He came to Australia as a midshipman as part of the Great White Fleet in 1908. And as a result, he had a very positive view of Australia and also its people um, at the time. He was a very intelligent officer and was able, importantly, to get on um, with people and also to deal with complex issues. He had a very good rapport with General MacArthur um, and, uh, and 
he got on well also with his at times prickly inner circle of, uh, of MacArthur's staff, and that was no mean feat. He also got on well with Collins and his re- replacement Commodore Harold Farncom. In Kincaid's papers, he, he gives an account of seeing from his flagship the first kamikaze hit the bridge of the cruiser Australia during the Battle of Leyday Gulf. Such was his concern for Collins that he, he went to Australia in, in a boat with his doctor, went through the, uh, the ship and finally found uh, Collins propped up on Australia's wardroom deck. Um, they uh, were to remain friends after the war. Uh, Rear Admiral Barbie, he was an expert in all things amphibious and indeed as a captain he produced the US Navy's first manual on the subject. Australian sailors called him Uncle Dan or Dan Dan the Amphibious Man and he was highly respected and uh, was a bit of a mentor for the amphibious ship captains. He was able to engage in a very positive way both uh, with his superiors and also his subordinates. uh, as an aside, just uh, reading his papers, it was clear from fairly early on he was keen to replace Kincaid in the top job, and he eventually did become commander of the Seventh Fleet after the war. Um, Commodore John Collins, uh, he he had high regard for MacArthur as a leader, and uh, as the national commander of the Australian Naval Squadron, actually developed a good relationship with MacArthur. And that's probably indicated at the end of the hostilities and prior to the surrender of the Japanese in the Tokyo Bay, um, the Australian squadron was uh, transferred from the 7th Fleet to the 3rd Fleet. And and MacArthur told Collins that it was like a loss in the family. Um, And finally, um, Commodore Harold Farncombe. Similarly, he had very good relations with US commanders. Um, Two things stand out from his papers and and his reports. First was that Farncombe was assiduous in ensuring that RN ships, when they arrived in theatre and before they arrived, that they were properly trained and briefed on the operations that they had to embark on. And then he would personally engage the the appropriate US commander to wherever that ship was going to ensure that they were briefed on the ship's capabilities to ensure that they were employed to the fullest. The other aspect that comes out about Farncombe was the great efforts he went to establish a rapport with either the US or the Australian Army commanders that he was there to support to ensure that uh, in the different amphibious operations that the naval forces were completely synchronised with the commander's intent. So now that we have some uh, view on the naval commanders, Peter Dean, would you mind taking us through who some of the Australian Army leadership were that began, and those who began to develop expertise in amphibious operations? Sure. I think the first real shout-out here has to go to um, uh, the then Lieutenant General, or sorry, Major General Sidney Rowell, so Sydney Rowell back in early 1942 was the Deputy Chief of the General Staff in the Australian Army and that's basically the senior mili- uh, military operations staff officer that the Australian Army had in that's what that particular position was called. And Rowell wrote a, a document very early in 1942 not long while the Japanese were still rampaging through the Pacific. And he wrote basically a, a note within the headquarters um, to General Blamey, the commander um, of the Australian military forces and to the senior staff, and basically said, 
we're going to have to develop an amphibious capability. Um, we can't basically walk back um, all the way from Australia to, to Tokyo. Um, we're going to need to develop this um, capability. We're going to need to do it in combination with our allies um, in the Southwest Pacific, the United States, and we need to start progressing this forward. And I think that's really visionary at the time. We were still on the back foot. We were still basically fighting defensive operations while the Japanese were being offensive. And it was basically Sydney Rail in that position who basically laid the very first foundations for this, and that brought up the discussions for the establishment of the Joint Overseas Operational Training School, for the establishment of the First Australian Army Amphibious Warfare School, and this all happened naturally in advance of our American allies. So we were on the front foot of this before MacArthur's General Headquarters had even got themselves organised and started to come to talk to us about it. So he's the first key figure. He's then replaced in that role by um, Major General Frank Berryman. Um, Berryman um, is known as the, as the best, basically, staff officer in the Australian Army in the Second World War and a superb planner. And he goes on through the war. He, he leads a, a corps for a short period of time, but he's basically Blamey's chief operations officer and the Army's chief operations officer through mass, most of the war. And he becomes a sort of de facto commander of the Australian Army group fighting the Japanese um, in 1945 in the Pacific when Blamey is back in Australia doing political and high-level strategic things. What Berryman does is basically take Sydney Rail's early ideas and start to put key people and key structures in place to enable um, these training schools to be set up and basically provides them with a strategic direction and that sort of top-down imperative um, for the army to start changing and adaptive and innovating. And you've got to remember this is an army that's basically been brought back, largely speaking, from the Middle East, where it's fighting um, open warfare um, against Rommel's Africa Corps and the Italians. Only a small number of the Australians had base, who'd fought in Malaya and Singapore and the islands to the north had escaped capture of the Japanese. And the army basically has to retool itself. It has to innovate and adapt. And that comes originally with that top-down direction from Blamey, from Sydney Rail and Frank Berryman, who demand this is what the army has to adjust and adapt itself through and set up the infrastructure and the systems to do this, while concurrently fighting those operations I mentioned before in the Kokoda Trail and in Boonagona and uh, Sandananda. Then you also have... Um, people down at the much lower rank level. So one who stands out is a, a major, later Lieutenant Colonel, and then Colonel Alfred Rose. Rose um, works with a, a senior um, uh, RAN captain, um, and they basically do a tour together up and down the coast of, um, of Australia, the east coast of Australia, looking for sites to be able to set up HMAS Assault, um, the Joint Overseas Operational Training School and these other training facilities. He's actually an instrumental officer in providing and training the first lot of army troops who start to go through the Joint Overseas Operational Training School. For a short period of time, he commands uh, a militia battalion who provide the demonstration troops of this. And then he moves on into taking key roles inside the military staff structures that the Australian Army starts to establish. And they do some a couple of key things. Um, after the uh, the experience of what happens at at um, that lay in Finchhaf, and when they realise their staff work is not up to it, and their ability to transition that ship to shore on the shoreline ratio, 
Um, people like Alfred Rose at the behest of Frank Berryman and others start to set up things like um, beach groups and beach organisations, which are large, basically logistical um, elements who are designed to open the beachhead and keep that beachhead open from a logistical and beach landing perspective, including an RAN beach commander that was part of that. And that's a key innovative period. And they also uh, are instrumental officers like these in getting together military landing officers, specialist staff officers with high-level training that were attached to units before they start preparing and training for amphibious operations. And then, of course, you've got... Uh, uh, a particularly important officer, Brigadier Ronald Hopkins. Hopkins was actually an armoured uh, Australian Armoured Corps officer. He'd spent his time in the Middle East um, commanding um, a, a cavalry regiment and uh, helping to prepare the development of the Australian Army to develop its own armoured divisions. But he goes off to New Guinea as a staff officer, um, as the, the basically the chief of staff for, for New Guinea Force, the principal army headquarters in New Guinea. He does that for a number of months and gets pretty much worn out and exhausted from that. And when he's replaced in that role, Blamey and MacArthur send him off to work with Admiral Barbie and they put him on Admiral Barbie's staff as a liaison officer. Admiral Barbie takes a highly experienced staff officer at this stage and makes um, Ronald Hopkins one of the heads of one of his two planning teams. So what Barbie does is have two planning teams, one conducting the current operation and one planning the next operation, and they cycle through. And an Australian actually heads one of those planning teams, Ronald Hopkins, throughout most of 1943 and into 1945 as well. From there, we also have the senior commanders. So George Wooten, who commands the 9th Division during the assault at Ley. Later on, Edward Milford, who commands the 7th Division in the Borneo operations in 1945. Uh, a very key officer is Brigadier David uh, Whitehead, or Torpy, as he's uh, nicknamed after the, um, given his surname. Um, and he's the commander of the 26th Brigade Group, and he does that assault landing. He's there at Ley and at Finchhafen, and of course commands the very large um, amphibious assault we see at Tarakan, which is a brigade-level assault at Tarakan in 1943, but um, Brigadier Whitehead has basically about 12,000 troops under his command for that particular operation, so realistically a small division. So there's a series of staff officers, senior commanders, but also um, operational commanders, and then a whole plethora of realistically unknown, generally unnamed staff officers at sort of major lieutenant colonel and colonel level who are the real driving force in the engine room of uh, doing the planning, which is so important in these operations, the training and the organisation for these operations on the Army side. Thank you. Peter Djokovic, in the next set of operations, the Australian squadron was led by an Australian for the first time, Commodore John Collins. They supported amphibious um, landings initially in the Admiralty Islands and going on to Moratai Island. Can you briefly explain what transpired? Well, the Australian government gave quite a lot of thought to the question of senior command in the RAN, sort of in the beginning of 1944. And at a cabinet meeting on the 4th of February, uh, they devised a succession plan whereby Collins would assume command of the Australian squadron at the conclusion of Rear Admiral Crutchley's term and then later assume the position of Chief of Naval Staff. And this was a conscious decision that senior command positions in the RAN would, from then on, be held by Australians rather than British officers on loan from the Royal Navy. And Collins is a fascinating personality. He's, he's kind of contradictory in some respects. He was a disciplinarian and adhered quite strictly to, to naval protocol. But at the same time, people were often surprised by how approachable and gregarious he could be. 
he was just a naturally commanding sort of personality, whether that was on the bridge of his ship or in, in social situations. And above all, he was just universally respected. He was a supremely capable naval officer. And he was the first Australian-born and trained officer to command the Australian squadron, as Peter Jones has, has, has already mentioned. Um, but he hadn't assumed command of the Australian squadron when the invasion of the Admiralty Islands commenced in, in late February. That was still Rear Admiral Crutchley. Um, Crutchley was uh, the commander of Task Force 74, and he was embarked in HMAS Shropshire, and Collins was, was Shropshire's captain. The operations at, at the Aberdeen Islands and Moratio Island are, are probably a pretty good example of the island hopping campaign that, that Peter Dean mentioned earlier. The, the intent of the Allied landings in the Admiralty Islands was to isolate the very large Japanese garrison at Rabaul and, and to provide a base for future operations. It turned out to be a fairly problematic operation for the Allies. Uh, the first landings were made on Los Negros Island on the 29th of February, and they found the island to be much better defended than they had expected, so the troops that landed there had a pretty torrid time. And Warramunga and Arunta were both heavily involved in providing naval gunfire support and covering the, the landing of reinforcements over the following days. And further operations in Seattle Harbour were also being frustrated by some persistent Japanese shore batteries. Uh, so the squadron carried out a series of shore bombardments in early March, which silenced a lot of those batteries and enabled landings to proceed. And Seattle Harbour actually became a major naval and air base following its capture. So with a lot of northern New Guinea sort of under, under Allied control, um, the focus then turned northwards in September and firstly to the island of Moratai. Uh, and at this point, Collins was now in command of the Australian, uh, Australian quadrant, squadron. Um, and the fleet of must for the Moratai operation numbered around 110 ships. Um, the Australian squadron at the time included Australia, Shropshire, Arunta and Warramunga, uh, as well as the American destroyers Mullaney and Ammon. And uh, they were part of the close support and, and covering force for the operation and, and conducted extensive pre-landing shore bombardment. So the intent of the invasion of Moritai was very similar to that of the Admiralties in that it was designed to bypass and isolate the large Japanese garrison on the island of Hamahera and provided uh, a, future, a base for future amphibious operations in the Philippines. But in contrast to the Admiralties, though, um, Moritai was comparatively lightly defended and the landings went ahead with very little opposition. So Allied aircraft were operating freely from multiple airfields on Moratai by the beginning of October and the island became a, a very important airbase heading into the, uh, the Philippines campaign. Okay, so Peter Jones, last year we did two podcasts on the Philippines campaign, which listeners can go back to listen to. But for completeness, briefly, what was the outcome of that campaign and what part did the RAN amphibious force play in that? So the Philippines campaign was the high point for the Royal Australian Navy in World War II and the three RAN amphibious ships, or the three musketeers as they sometimes called themselves collectively, um, the campaign was massive in scale and involved over 300 Allied ships, 1,500 aircraft and 200,000 men. And it was a campaign in two parts. The Leyte Gulf operation took place in October 1944. Um, there were a number of major sea engagements and I, and I really do commend those two podcasts on Leyte and Lingang Gulf operations to the listeners. Um, the amphibious component was the lodgement of the U.S. Sixth Army on Leyte, and um, and the three musketeers were part of Barbie's force of over 40 amphibious ships. The following January, MacArthur followed up with the landings on the shores of Lingayen Gulf on the island of Luzon. The objective here was for the U.S. Army to sweep down on Manila, uh, which they eventually did by the end of February 1945. 
um, the, the uh, all three ships took part in this operation. There was actually two um, beachheads, and uh, they took part in the western one. Um, and to give you an idea, they uh, would typically embark uh, 1,250 troops, um, and so they, as quickly as possible, um, uh, lodged those troops, and then they would um, have an amount of supporting stores, and the, and the three ships could um, uh, offload about 100 tonnes an hour of, of stores. So they're really quite proficient by that stage. The uh, the Japanese uh, resistance in the Lingayen um, campaign was ferocious and was ep- epitomised by the repeated kamikaze aircraft attacks. Um, and HMAS Australia, the um, flagship, famously survived five kamikaze hits during that battle. And Australia herself, she was a target of one kamikaze, but a determined gun crew caused the aircraft at the last moment to um, uh, crash into the sea very near to the ship. Um, and uh, and on that sort of point, it's probably worth um, listeners to listen to that uh, that episode on the Lingayen Gulf where Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths gives a quite a vivid account of uh, of surviving those kamikaze raids from his ship, the Shropshire. So, Peter Dean, the next operations were in Borneo and involved uh, the Australian Army. Why did the Allies backtrack to Borneo and how did these operations go? Yeah, it's an interesting um, period of time and development, particularly for the Army. So, the Army, as I mentioned, conducted large-scale assaults at Ley in 1943 during the campaign in Operation Postern. That was the landing of the whole of the 9th Division AIF. And that was done, as I mentioned earlier, with that more still British style of approach and attack, a kind of a hybrid doctrine that was part British and part American by this stage, where they landed away from the enemy um, at Ley, outside the range of uh, artillery fire, and then manoeuvred towards the objective. They then shortly thereafter conducted a brigade-sized assault um, at uh, Finschaffen, basically using the momentum that they had from Lay, the quick um, uh, time it took to to take Lay, and then uh, landing at Finschaffen again against little resistance, but against uh, what eventually built up to be a major campaign as the Japanese tried to t- to counterattack the Australian Army there and eliminate them. And then what they fell into was a long sort of grinding. Um, uh, campaign throughout uh, the rest of 1943 into April of 1944 as I, as I went along the coastline up to Medang and the 7th Division which had landed by air at the Nadzab airfield, making that operation really unique that was combined with a large-scale amphibious assault and, and an airborne um, and air landing assault to take Medang. And what had really developed um, also from an amphibious point of view for the 9th Division was the need for much more smaller craft to be able to do that littoral manoeuvre, that is, along the coastline and between those islands, to be able to keep the campaign rolling. While, as um, as was noted before, the Australian um, ships and the um, Barbie's amphibious force basically sailed off c- to conduct those other operations that were happening throughout the rest of the, the campaign in the area through 1944, mainly led by the Americans. It also meant that during this period of 1944, um, the Australian Army had a long period of time where it was out of battle. Well, that is the AIF components, the Australian, the all-volunteer Australian Imperial Force. This gave them uh, the chance to do extensive training in amphibious operations. They were able to do a lot of bottom-up adaptation, that is taking a lot of the lessons that they learned from Lay and Finchhafen 
and applying to how they would next to amphibious operations. And as I mentioned before, one of the biggest lessons they had was their basically logistical ill-preparedness for the campaign, the great difficulty they had keeping the beachhead open. When the 9th Division had landed at Ley, it had actually had to pull a Pioneer Battalion and a couple of infantry battalions out of the front line and send them back to the beachhead to basically unload stores and to be able to keep the force moving. And they found it very difficult to, without enough uh, smaller landing craft to use um, supply lines along the water's edge rather than slogging through the jungle. So that had led to the creation of the beach groups. Um, the beach groups were able to be fully exercised in this period to 1944, um, and the 6th, um, the 7th and the 9th Divisions AIF all had extensive training in amphibious operations while they basically waited for um, the campaign to roll out. Meanwhile, the 1st Australian Army was formed. It took over the operations in the Solomon Islands and the South Pacific, releasing many of the American troops. And there were actually a large number of small-scale amphibious operations carried out by the 1st Australian Army. They're at company level and battalion level, um, normally shore-to-shore operations using those smaller landing craft, most of which are successful. But, of course, there's a, a quite well-known failure at a place called Porton Plantation where they overestimated their capabilities underestimated the training of the force and underestimated Japanese opposition. In the meantime, MacArthur had gone up, um, as Peter Jones was mentioning, through the Philippines campaign, um, fighting some divisive and decisive battles through that campaign, and particularly Nimitz and his um, carrier battle groups. And then we get to the position of what to next. So the Australian AIF had been basically MacArthur's reserve during the Philippines campaign. Um, he was the last remaining uncommitted major formation that MacArthur had. But of course, MacArthur very much wanted to use American troops to recapture the Philippines, the area that he'd lost early on in the war that he sort of was about American pride. And of course, during 1943, in that part of 44, MacArthur had been inundated as the American war machine had really ramped up and he was no longer dependent for his ground forces on the Australian army like he had been in the Papua campaign and the early campaigns in 1943. So the question really became what to do with the AIF. So the 6th Division was sent off to fight in operations in um, in northern New Guinea in around Weewak, um, where they conducted a number of smaller scale amphibious operations. Um, but a core of the 7th and 9th Division was basically formed as a task force. Frank Berryman, who I mentioned before, was sent up and attached to MacArthur's headquarters to look after Australian interests and do the planning for the use of this force. And both he and Blamey had knocked back a large number of um, potential operations MacArthur's um, headquarters had put forward because it had tried to split up the Australian, um, first Australian Corps into small penny packets and attach them to different army units. And of course, we wanted to maintain a level of sovereignty um, and a level of keeping our formation, um, the first Australian Corps together. Then there became the question of what to do with Borneo. And this is a really duplicitous decision about um, doing the Borneo operations. Originally, they were designed um, alongside the Philippines campaign to basically retake that part of the Southwest Pacific area that MacArthur had responsibility for. But of course, once the, the uh, Leyte Gulf and Luzon campaigns in the Philippines were allowed to compete, and of course, the Central Pacific campaign in Nimitz had progressed on closer and closer to Japan, basically Basically, Borneo was isolated um, and largely cut off its supplies and its troops from mainland um, Japan. So there um, originally was a large number of campaigns to be done in um, Borneo. These were paired back to three operations and still then they were very controversial. Um, 
Blamey and Berryman were unconvinced about these operations and had told the Australian government about it, but MacArthur had been pressing the Australian government um, to basically keep those forces. He'd been pressed by the American senior command to utilise and make use of the Australians. And so what he ended up doing was playing a duplicitous role here where he was telling the Australian government that the US Joint Chiefs of Staff had demanded that the Borneo operations go ahead and that in an endeavour to keep the relationship with MacArthur and the Americans on side, the Australians had to commit their troops, while at the same time telling the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, his bosses, that the Borneo operations had to go ahead because the Australian government was demanding that their forces um, be used. And of course, because the Australian government didn't have that direct line to the US Chiefs of Staff, we had to go through MacArthur. He was able to play this duplicitous hand. Um, what had also happened when we went into these operations, <clears throat> the, the first one was, the, as I mentioned before, the brigade operation at Tarakan. Um, that was set up to establish an airfield and a port and a staging base to provide basically air cover for the follow-on operations. Um, and it was a successful landing and operation against um, very difficult conditions, um, uh, as was the Balakpapan and uh, the Labuan Island and North Borneo operations. But I think what's most important about these operations is how they had changed in that period from 1944 to 1945. So as I mentioned, we'd had more of a British style or hybrid doctrine that we'd been covering, landing away from the enemy and then manoeuvring to the objective. By the time we get to Borneo, the Allies now have sea supremacy, they have air supremacy in the area and they have overwhelming firepower. And MacArthur, of course, who back in 1944 had struggled for every ship and every aircraft and every landing craft and every soldier, now had a plethora of ships, um, a large number of um, escort carriers, a large number of land-based air power, a significant sized amphibious force that he could use. And what the Australians were able to do was basically to look at the operations they had to do and make some different tactical decisions. Um, we'd done a lot of um, learning from the United States in the Central Pacific, what the Marine Corps had done. And what the US Marine Corps had done is actually, excuse me, they had basically perfected this thing of what they called storm landings. That is landing directly into the teeth of the enemy's um, defences using the new technology, particularly landing vehicle tanks, so tracked armoured landing craft with overwhelming um, fire superiority provided through naval gunfire support and heavy air support. And the Australians had a plethora of these supporting operations that they could draw on, which meant that the Tarakan um, operation at Balakpapan and at Labuan Island, we were able to do frontal assaults. And in fact, the commander, Teddy Milford, the commander of the 7th um, uh, Australian Division, excuse me, at Balakpapan, had decided that looking on the basis of did he land away from the enemy and manoeuvre to the objective through the jungle or landing right on the objective in a frontal assault that would actually be more efficient and cost less casualties to actually do a frontal assault given the level of overwhelming firepower that he had to, that he was available. Um, so this really meant that by the time you get to the Balakpapan operation, the large, last allied major amphibious assault of the Second World War, the Australians had progressed to actually using much more of that US Navy, US Marine Corps doctrine of what you would call a storm landing, heavily supported by land-based air power, heavily supported by carrier aviation, and massively supported 
by uh, naval gunfire support that was able to be pushed onto the objective, which meant there were still some tactical problems with some of these um, with some of these landings. The Australians have still had to a lot to learn about beach reconnaissance. There was still a lot to learn in hydrography and mine clearance, but tactically they were successful and. Um, uh, very, very successful. They were the sort of pinnacle of Australian Army operations from both an amphibious and ground force operations point of view. But the question has to be asked is strategically were they useful at all? And I'd have to say my answer to that was no. They were basically a road to nowhere. They were going in the wrong direction from the Japanese mainland and mainly they were strategically undertaken because of MacArthur's duplicity um, and because of the nature of the um, Allied command arrangements and basically alliance management of this particular part of the war. Peter Djokovic, these operations were also the first that involved the RAN's beach commandos. Who were they and what did they do? Well, the Naval Beach Commandos hold a, a pretty unique place in Australian naval history. They they wore army greens and slouch hats, so they looked like soldiers rather than sailors. And the, the type of operations and the type of training that they undertook was unlike anything that the Navy had really undertook before. And it's sort of reflective of the developing uh, doctrine that Peter Dean was just talking about, about uh, 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 doing frontal assaults on defended beaches. So the beach commandos initially did their training at uh, HMAS Assault, as Peter Jones has, has told us. And they learned how to conduct in-water beach surveys, which would often leave them immersed in water, fully closed for hours on end, and how to construct makeshift metal pathways on the beach for heavy vehicles. Uh, they also completed assault courses and received instructions in various weapons and explosives, uh, as well as hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, they were intended to be amongst the first people on the beach after all. So if there was any enemy resistance, uh, they were the guys that were going to have to face it. And in many ways, the type of training that they were undertaking was sort of preemptive of the, the type of special forces training that the RAN's clearance diving teams would later undertake. So four beach commando units were formed by the end of 1944 under the overall command of uh, Principal Beachmaster Commander Robert Pearson, although they had to wait until May 1945 before they were actually called into action. Uh, they participated in the three OBO operations at Tarakan, uh, Brunei Bay and Balakpapan. And on each occasion, they were the first Allied personnel ashore. So they would come ashore and conduct reconnaissance, direct naval gunfire, uh, establish shore-based communications, direct and control landing craft. They generally organise and direct all the work that was going on on the beaches. So the pre-landing bombardments, um, you, you know, were quite um, effective at all three operations. Um, but you know they they still did meet uh, some level of resistance at all three. Uh, for instance, a beach control point came under shell fire on the second day of the invasion of Tarakan, and uh, two beach commandos, uh, both telegraphists John Brady and William Bryan, were, were both killed. Um, the beach commandos came out of the war having earned a, a lot of respect and were singled out for praise by the likes of General MacArthur and and Rear Admiral Barbie. Uh, it's really quite gratifying to see them as well getting a bit more recognition in recent years because for a long time they were literally the forgotten unit of the Navy and we, we throw that euphemism around a fair bit for the beach commandos. It, it was really true. I remember speaking to a former beach commander a few years ago who had basically given up telling people about his war experiences because having never heard of the beach commandos, people just thought he was basically spitting a few tall tales. So I know that there was some element of quiet satisfaction within him that the story of the beach commandos had, had started to reach the public consciousness. 
Peter Jones, can you make an assessment in the performance of the naval units in the Balak Papen operations as compared with the initial amphibious operations in late 1942? So perhaps I can uh, answer this in two parts. So first, the cruisers and destroyers were now much better equipped with radar, heavier close-range anti-aircraft guns and improved communication sets. And um, when uh, Peter Dean was earlier talking about that increased numbers of aircraft. What cruisers could do now with their air search radars was actually control and vector uh, own fighters from the aircraft carriers onto enemy aircraft to, and, and intercept them. Uh, the planning staffs and ships command teams were now much more experienced in supporting the army and so the level of support to the lodgement was much more in, uh, effective. Turning to the three musketeers, Canimbla, Manura and Westraya, I think it's worth focusing on their internal ship's organisation. And I'll just quote from uh, Commodore John Collins on the subject. And he said, I was, of course, aware of the plans for the landing ships at each point of the invasion and saw from the bridge of my flagship the spectacular execution of orders. What I did not, and indeed could not, see, however, was the vast amount of preparatory training and drill the LSIs had to undergo before they could accomplish their tasks. The complete success of the missions proved the thoroughness of the intensive training and the, the split-minute timing of planning and operations on board. And I think this uh, highlights something that we often neglect when we're talking about operations, and that is the efficient ships have well thought out internal procedures, good leadership at all ranks, great teamwork, and a distinctive ship ethos and morale. And by 1945, the three musketeers were really very impressive landing ships. The Balak Papen landings were the last of these operations for Australia. In conclusion, I'd like to check in with the panel for their thoughts on the legacies of these amphibious operations for Australia in the Second World War. Uh, Peter Dean, would you like to start with your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I think they're critically important and that's because fundamentally the geography hasn't changed. Um, you know, we've now moved in modern contemporary Australian defence policy and planning into a focus on the Indo-Pacific and in particular on the areas um, that basically are very similar to what we operated in in the Southwest Pacific area in the Second World War. And while the political geography of that area has changed, while the potential adversary um, that we're concerned about has changed, and technology um, has advanced in many ways, fundamentally the, the, the basic geographical problem of military operations in this region stands true. Um, you need in a large um, archipelago in an area dominated by littorals where there's lots of islands, where there's the need to manoeuvre land forces from ship to shore. Amphibious operations are still very much important. We can see that today with the landing helicopter dock ships that the RAN has. We, um, If you look at the Army today, it's rediscovering its amphibious routes and amphibious past. It's looking back at these operations and studying them, um, and it's adapting to the new reality that we have um, in terms of uh, the operations today. And while I said that a lot of the technology has changed, you know, it was only uh, 
two weeks ago, the Army did an exercise of putting a tank on a landing craft and moving it from a Navy ship and putting it ashore. You know, that's something they hadn't done with the current Abrams tanks before, but it's something that the Army had perfected alongside the Navy in the Second World War. Um, and when you look at other elements of what's happening in the modern world today, in particular um, humanitarian and disaster assistance relief, um, particularly as we're seeing the impacts of climate change um, being more prescient than ever, um, these amphibious capabilities are wonderful assets to be able to undertake those. And the current amphibious capability is, has proved its um, operational worth time and time again in recent years, conducting HADR operations. Um, and they are relevant all the way up. The, the conflict spectrum um, to way that Army and Navy are thinking about operating together in our region to deter um, uh, high-end conflict into the region as well. Peter Djokovic, would you like to give us your thoughts? Yeah, well, apart from the, you know, the sort of big picture strategic and, and geopolitical influence that, that these sorts of operations had, I really must admit to having a certain affinity with the beach commandos. Uh, I, I compared them to the Navy clearance diving teams a little earlier, and in many ways they were the forerunner to special operations in the RAN. So, um, you know, the, the short answer is I, you know, I think that the, the bridge commandos that have left an indelible mark on the Navy, um, which perhaps doesn't always get the recognition that it deserves. And Peter Jones, your thoughts? The RAN's amphibious ships in World War II, the, the Three Musketeers, as they call themselves, made a significant contribution to the war in the Pacific, which provided a, a proud heritage for today's Three Musketeers of Canberra, Adelaide and Shules. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. My sincere thanks to our panel, Peter Dean, Peter Djokovic and Peter Jones. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group and the Creative Media Unit at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you very much for joining us and if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now. <laughs>